Programming Notes episodes, the general concept is that you can get an extended summary of episodes if you decide that you'd rather have that than listen to the episodes themselves, as well as some notes about what's going on in the community or how you can be helpful and useful in the community. Weekly episode summaries and programming notes for the week of June 19th, 2022. This is a quick one as I am supposedly off this week. You know, wish me luck not getting jury duty. That would not be great for, for the podcast, obviously. Uh, as always, uh, there's extended summaries for the interview episodes that will follow this brief uh, kind of intro to what's going to be for this week. So on Monday, we have episode 90 which is sharing data reliably in hyperscale mode with an interview with Bjorn Smedman. So Bjorn's company, Cinch, is in hypergrowth mode, going from 500 to 3K people or 3K plus people in the last year, much through acquisitions. As you can imagine, that's made it tough to even share data on the operational side. So hear how they're in- handling this interesting challenge by decentralizing their their data teams and embedding people into their their different domains. On Tuesday, we have episode 91, which is the the case of the missing data mesh zealots, a mesh mystery, mesh musings number 19. I keep seeing all these pushbacks against data mesh, and they're they're typically talking about people saying data mesh is for everyone, and that you you just have to do these few things or, or whatever, or that people are pushing back on that, oh, if you don't do it with any care, you're going to create chaos. And it's kind of like, well, well, duh. But outside of vendors and a few people trying to change the definition of data mesh, I'm just not seeing these zealots, right? Data mesh zealot, data mesh zealot. Wherefore art thou, data mesh zealot? On Friday, we have episode 92, which is good data mesh governance through empathy and partnership an interview with Jay Como and Liz Calloway at uh, Silicon Valley Bank. So Liz and Jay shared their insights on how to be an enabler and push your data mesh journey forward through good data governance, which is what they're doing at SVB. And him, it's a lot of using empathy. (laughs) That seems to be a key enabler in many data mesh conversations. Hint, hint. So... Uh, I think you'll enjoy this week and the extended summaries for the two interview episodes will follow. Extended summary for episode number 90, sharing data reliably in hyperscale mode, an interview with Bjorn Smedman. So in this episode, I I interviewed Bjorn, who's an engineering manager at communication platform as a service company, Cinch. I'll put my thoughts or takeaways from this at the end. Since December 2020, Cinch has raised nearly $2 billion. With this funding, they've made a number of sizable acquisitions with the company growing from 500 employees to over 3,000 in about a year. This has led to some interesting challenges in sharing data in a hyperscaling environment. Per Bjorn, data is a very key part of Cinch's plans for growth. There's a number of business units and they have to be able to share information with each other. Since 
cinches operational systems are often very transactional as they can process tens of thousands of monetary transactions a second. So data that might be typically shared on the operational plane, you know, living in operational systems and shared kind of via API in a lot of other companies is shared on the data plane instead. So that way the operational data stores aren't having to deal with, you know, billions of events and (laughs) billions or trillions or whatever of rows and things like that. And making the data challenges even more complex than for most organizations, because you have to get them out of the system that's just doing the transactions into a system of record. And that system of record isn't even the system for the analytics. And then you add in the regulatory requirements of telecom, and it's even more fun. So as Cinch started to acquire more companies, Bjorn's helped to lead the move to decentralizing that data team. When Bjorn had joined, the central data team organization was four different teams and 25 total people. The data function was previously centralized, and that was becoming a bottleneck even for the legacy business. It was becoming somewhat difficult to handle that when it was the 500 uh, people. Now that it's 4,000, you know, 8x, it's going to be pretty hard. So now that the company acquired a number of those other sizable companies, that central data team setup clearly just wasn't going to scale as is. And the company reorganized around business units and started to build some data and analytics teams inside each business unit. And so I'll, I'll get into that a little bit uh, in a bit here. So for Bjorn, who, who did start in December of 2021, just as Cinch had really started their kind of acquisition uh, movement, the central data team was clearly not going to be able to meet the needs of the new organizational structure that you know, was 8x larger than it was you know, relatively short time ago. There was just too much cognitive load on the team, especially trying to understand the product lines and of five distinct business units, many of which were entirely new to the company, and some of them were very, very complex. So Bjorn started to talk about some good indicators of what to look for when considering if you should decentralize your data team as they did at Cinch. A big one is team cognitive load, as I mentioned earlier. That cognitive overload can take many forms. You know, when you think about how many systems, especially complex ones, are are your teams managing? Do they really deeply understand the systems? Do they need to deeply understand them to work with them, right? If you really, really have to understand these real intricacies of systems, putting a bunch of those onto a centralized team is not going to work very well. And how many competencies does the team and each individual on the team need to have to do their day-to-day work? You know, do you have to know the inner workings of 30 different complex distributed systems technologies? What percent of time is spent in meetings, especially follow-up meetings where, you know, it might be that a request came in and then, you know, there's some work was done and then uh, more conversation context sharing if there's a lot of those, it means that there's a lot of context handoff going on, and that might be better if that were able to be handled inside the domain itself. One that wasn't mentioned, but I think is important, is kind of the request turnaround time, if that starts to really lengthen. If somebody comes in with a data request and what used to take you know, a week, you know, eight, six months, 
nine months ago, it's now taking, you know, four weeks or whatever. That's a big sign that you're becoming, that that centralized data team is becoming a bottleneck. Cinch did have that strong signal that they were seeing that they should consider moving towards a decentralized data team approach. Combine that with the business announcing in early February of 2022 that they were organizing themselves into five distinct business units, and you really had a, a kind of great opportunity to really rethink that centralized data team approach, especially because the companies that they acquired brought in some of their own capabilities, and each of the business units were starting to build out their own um, data and analytics capabilities internally. Um, But there would still be that very distinct need for teams to share data with each other, with the other business units. So they did need to look at, instead of just having that centralized data team, they do need the common self-serve data platform that to actually meet the needs of those teams. If they didn't have that common platform, you could just think about each business unit would need to do custom integrations with the other BUs, and that coordination just gets insane. You know, you think about each each one might even have to have um, two with each other business unit where, you know, it might not be bi-directional. You might need to have one that's for sharing out their data, one for ingesting data. Obviously, that would be a pretty bad situation. Regarding machine learning, an interesting point Bjorn had talked about was how difficult it can be to prioritize. There is a chicken and egg issue here before data producing teams are willing to work to create a data product that will feed an ML model. They really want to know how valuable or what will be the result of that ML model. But the ML teams need to get access to the data first to determine how valuable the data is going to be before assigning that value. So there is a need for speculative bets, and those are hard to prioritize. Uh, Bjorn worked with the central data platform team as well to build out that common data platform that I talked about earlier. And you know they built it with Data Lake, Data Warehouse, and so they kind of combined that into a Data Lake House approach as well as streaming capabilities. They're using as many open standards as possible to prevent that lock-in and, and kind of make it. It's often you can find uh, more integrations are available when things are open standards. The goal of the platform is to make it easy to do the necessary data engineering work for every business unit. You know, kind of again, it's it's probably that eighty twenty rule of you can't necessarily satisfy every single. Uh, workload and use case, but they're trying to to be that kind of common platform that makes it easy to do the data engineering side. Um, but Bjorn mentioned it, it really is important to monitor to prevent the data platform team from becoming another just data team. Uh, if you're seeing your data team start to dig into the semantics of use cases, that's a red flag to watch out for. So if I were to give you kind of my takeaways and some some interesting things that, that I learned from this, one, A good indicator for when you should think about decentralizing your data team is the cognitive load of that that team. How many systems, you know, including a measure of how complex are those systems, are they managing? How much of their time is spent in meetings, especially trying to understand context and requests? Is there starting to be combative prioritization from multiple domains or business units or whatever? Number two, it can be beneficial and scalable to apply data mesh principles to non-analytical use cases, especially sharing data for application purposes. 
you know, this doesn't have to be that it's exactly on the operational plane. There are a lot of organizations that are looking at having kind of a purely transactional operational plane and then kind of a data sharing plane and then uh, look to create that kind of analytical plane as well. Number three, it is still often difficult to prioritize creating a data product for machine learning without knowing the business value of the ML model. But the ML team needs to the data first before they can really assess and figure out what the business value of that ML model is going to be. So you have to be comfortable to make speculative bets. And finally, if you see the data platform team start to dig into the semantics of a use case, that's a red flag that people are trying to leverage them as a data team. And while you want that centralized data platform team, you probably don't want them to become a centralized data team, especially if you just decentralized your data team. Extended summary for episode 92, Good Governance Through Empathy and Partnership, an interview with Jay Como and Elizabeth Calloway. So in this episode, I, I interviewed Jay Como, who's the head of finance data, and Liz Calloway, who's the director of finance data products at Silicon Valley Bank. To be clear, they were only representing their own views and experiences. So Jay started the discussion talking about the concept of governance as a service, in other words, providing a service to internal stakeholders instead of a mandate of comply or else or anything like that. And while governance may not be the most, quote unquote, sexy aspect of data, it certainly is one of the most crucial. For Jay, without good governance, data is often not nearly as correct and clean as it could be. So internal stakeholders aren't making as good of decisions as they could. He laid out a simple framework of great data leads to great decisions, which lead to great outcomes. There, there obviously is a law of diminishing returns here, but look to find that line where the juice is no longer worth the squeeze but you can drive incremental value by cleaning up the quality of your data. I think we all kind of know that with data mesh. As for driving buy-in internally, Jay recommends to quote unquote, wear people down with empathy and be ready to repeat yourself, maybe with small variations until you find what resonates to be able to make change. You don't often win people over with a single conversation or presentation. So I think if you were to take one thing away from this, it would be wear people down with empathy. I really like that, that phrasing and, and that kind of concept. So Liz started off by pointing to the fact that it's quite easy to drive buy-in that good data governance provides value for the data consumers. It's driving that buy-in upstream that becomes a little bit, a lot a bit more difficult. To get moving on that buy-in, Liz recommends kind of flipping the script and changing the narrative and, and dialogue. It isn't driving a mandate. It's talking about what benefit this has to them and the organization. It, it's not governance for the sake of it. You know, let them in on why. What, why are we doing this? That way, they're they're more open to guiding or shepherding them towards you know providing that that better quality, that high quality data. So, in all your communications, again, lead with empathy. Jay discussed how they are taking on the really hard parts of governance 
from their business partners, right? They are pulling those things onto their own plate when it makes sense. That way, those business counterparts will see the governance team as a legitimate partner, not a dreaded gatekeeper. Provide them with a constant stream of valuable insight and work, you know, decks, plans, roadmaps, etc. And then very key, execute on what you say you will. You have to kind of prove it out that you are of value, but that will drive buy-in. Jay also mentioned that acting like you are a highly regulated entity at the organization level, even if you aren't, will set you down a good path to understanding and protecting your data. It's an investment, but a big risk mitigation and potential value driver because you're going to know how your business works far, far better. Liz talked about while governance is not a direct revenue stream, even if the governance team can add value to data driving better outcomes, governance is often a major cost avoidance. Obviously, for a highly regulated industry like banking, that can mean fees and fines. But many people are also pointing to things like what happened with Unity Software, where they have a $110 million expected negative revenue impact in 2022 because they were ingesting bad data from their their customers. And they announced this in uh, mid-May of 2022. To put that in context, that's 10% of their revenue. They lost 10% of their 2021 revenue because of a bad data incident. It's not about driving fear for Liz. And talking about how bad data has a negative impact on the business feels basic or a bit obvious for her. But having the conversations, showing how better governance drives better outcomes, executing on the tough parts the governance teams takes on, all that will drive that buy-in. So I asked about how, if the governance team is taking work on from other teams, does the governance team avoid becoming a bottleneck? Jay, first off, acknowledged it's a real possibility and it's, it's not something that you want and that you really have to specifically try to avoid that. It's not just going to happen of its own accord. One thing that has worked for him historically is to play kind of a neutral party and extract the context between two sides that are are having a disagreement. And both sides can then understand the other instead of battle each other. If they both come to the table with full context, then it's much easier to actually negotiate and, and have that collaborative negotiation. Make everyone feel seen and heard rather than solving all the problems for them. But fixing issues where possible, not so teams are reliant on you, but they see you as a partner, again, it's worked well for him. Jay discussed a few ways to prevent general bottlenecks in the governance process as well. In data, we often take on tech debt unintentionally or sweep it under the rug. But Jay recommends being flexible with requirements, but calling out very specifically when, why, and how you are waiving requirements in that specific situation. It's not about being lax. It's being pragmatic that not everything has to be perfect as long as all parties are aware of what the flaws are and they're carefully documented and very explicit and there is a mitigation plan in place. Being explicit about exceptions and expectations means you can move quicker. Be flexible but realistic. Speaking of being realistic, 
Liz talked about how there is no magic wand to suddenly fix all your governance challenges, right? And things are never going to be in a perfect state. Good governance is about incremental improvements, providing roadmaps and executing on the roadmaps as a partner and make your business partners feel heard along the way. Things change and being flexible is crucial. How can you fix the problem of today and then put processes in place to prevent that problem in the future? Nothing is about the black and white. Jay quoted Jerry Maguire of help me help you. The governance team is all about enabling other teams to drive value and prevent issues. So drive that perception of being the helpful team. It's also quite difficult to get your quote unquote your plan implemented. It's much easier to get quote unquote our plan implemented. In the new school kind of data governance world, as opposed to kind of the old school of what many people have been doing for the last 30 years, Jay believes we need to drive people towards actually caring about data governance at all. There's a lot of people that say, well, to move fast, we can't care about data governance. Data governance can be uh, a value add and not just a hassle. Both Liz and Jay emphasized you can Prove data governance as a value add by helping teams get to quick wins. Show that value. You want to balance that out with some long-term wins, not only the short, but it's this is still another endorsement for driving to quick wins, as Joe Reese emphasized in his episode. I think, you know, with Data Mesh, we want to look for where we can find low-hanging fruit and that that we start to look more and more for that long-term as well once we figure out how to find the short-term and satisfy the short-term. But I think it's important to kind of do both. Jay and Liz wrapped up by talking about the need for a great team and to drive forward with empathy. You need to work as partners with your internal constituents. Take some work off their plate to make things easier so for them, so you can drive more value together. If I were to kind of sum these up into some key thoughts, I've got 10 points here. Number one, the governance team should quote unquote, wear them down with empathy. If I were to say anything that you learn from this, that's the, the big, big one. Take the time to share your context, learn their context, make them feel seen and heard, actually see and hear them. <laughs> that will get them to see you as a partner and Good governance is truly about partnering, not mandating or being a gate slash hurdle to get past. Number two, great governance is the pathway to great data. Great data leads to great decisions, which lead to great outcomes. Share that path to great outcomes so people can see a clear answer to, you know, why are we doing this? Governance isn't just risk mitigation. It can be a significant value driver. Number three, to drive governance buy-in for data producers, again, lead with empathy. Let them in on the why. Why does this matter? What is the business value? How can this benefit them? How can this benefit the organization? Number four, help me help you. It's a good approach to talking to internal teams about data governance. You are there to drive value for them. Take work off their plates when it's appropriate. Number five, you can further drive buy-in through helping teams get to quick wins. While the long-term is obviously important, incremental value add is better than a big bang approach. Number six, provide a constant stream of value, including executing on where you are helping. That will drive teams to want to work with the central governance function. Drive value and the buy-in naturally comes with it. 
Number seven, good data governance is necessary to avoid fees, fines, and kind of the big revenue or business impact bad data can have. But don't use those as a boogeyman. Don't use fear to sell good data governance. Number eight, it's easy for a centralized governance team to become a bottleneck. Focus on not solving all the problems for teams, but being there to help when they need it. You are the backstop, not the stop sign. Be the support, not the roadblock. Number nine, to prevent governance in general from being a bottleneck, you must have flexibility and pragmatism. If exceptions to requirements are necessary, then those exceptions are often a valid response to these constraints and pressures. But be very explicit about the reason and type of exceptions, and also very explicit about the expectations for if slash when those exceptions will be remediated. And lastly, number 10, good governance is about incremental improvements, not trying to do everything as a big bang. Set expectations, move forward. Fix for today and prevent the same issue in the future. So I think you'll enjoy this episode when it comes out. Thank mm-hmm. you.